This uh, President's Day lecture is a lecture series, and uh, it didn't exist when I was first appointed to the faculty. Uh, President's Day, actually it's, it's really in federal law, Washington's birthday, but everybody calls it President's Day, um, <clears throat> including the department stores that have sales, right, the President's Day sales. Um, uh, it has been a holiday for a long time. Um, but all we did um, at Thomas Aquinas College was uh, yeah, take the day off. I've always thought that's wrong for, for holidays that are commemorating something in particular. At least for Veterans Day, you ought to go to the, you ought to be somewhere where the flag is being raised. You know, and on Memorial Day, you ought to go to a cemetery. And uh, on St. Thomas Day, we have a lecture on St. Thomas. And we, I, we now have a Dominican form of the Mass. So with those sorts of things in my mind, um, when I was a young upstart tutor, uh, a few years after I'd been appointed, um, I proposed to the faculty that we should uh, not just take the day off, but in some way commemorate the founding of our republic, for which we ought to have a suitable piety. So um, we agreed, the faculty agreed, and the change was made. So <clears throat> uh, for this lecture, uh, you can blame me. <laughs> they told me to bell the cat, you know. <laughs> I said, let's do it. And they said, all right, you do it. Now that's, now that's not quite right. At first, we had um, significant public figures. Uh, my uh, beau ideal of a rhetorician, Alan Keyes, has given one. Justice Scalia has given one. Ronald Reagan's national security advisor, Judge uh, Bill Clark, has given one, uh, Admiral Denton, Henry Hyde of the Hyde Amendment. So we, we've tried to have people with uh, experience in politics, and with experience in politics, that goes rather beyond my blazing little political career that Tom Kaiser told you about. <laughs> uh, <clears throat> um, <clears throat> so I don't know whether we've run out of friendly politicians, or <laughs> now that, now that I'm getting old, we want to honor me, or just why it is that I'm here, and, and not say Amy uh, Comey Barrett or someone else like that. Um, uh, but any event, that's, that's the um, origin of the lecture series. I was the first tutor to be asked to give it, um, uh, give this lecture. Uh, I gave one in um, Santa Paula two years ago on um, the rhetoric of Lincoln's Peoria speech, 1854 Peoria speech, which I think is his greatest speech. At least it's the greatest of the long ones. Maybe the Gettysburg Address and the second inaugural are in some other ways greater. Um, it's like trying to compare the Matthew Passion to one of the Chopin etudes or something. <laughs> Chopin was really good at short things. <laughs> and Bach was very good at long ones. Um, <clears throat> In any event, I'm, I'm um, deeply appreciative of the honor. <clears throat> now, um, these are the introductory remarks. I have a couple more to make very quickly. A lecture, as the Latin root indicates, is something read. This I will deliver from this shortly. 
For now, I have been making preliminary remarks, and I will continue briefly. First, this, which may not appear to have any relation to anything, but you'll see. The word laconic, I trust it's familiar to you. It's uh, connected with Lacedaemonia, the, the name for the district uh, whose ruling city is Sparta. And um, the Spartans are famous for speaking briefly, briefly and pithily. So a person who's called laconic is a person like that. Uh, we don't read this life in Plutarch, but uh, Lysander was the Spartan uh, general who was uh, responsible for the uh, final capitulation of Athens, alas, in the Peloponnesian War. Um, and uh, he sent a message back uh, to the home city, Sparta, and it said, Athens has fallen. And the Spartans sent back a note saying, fallen would have been enough. <laughs> now that's a culture that's laconic. <laughs> Coolidge, they say, was laconic. You may know a story or two about Coolidge that way. There are a number of them, and they're quite funny. Um, I will tell you just one, which is one of the less familiar ones. He uh, was a church goer. And one day, um, he went to church. Uh, he's a Protestant. He was a Congregationalist, roughly. And came back, went by himself. Uh, and uh, when he got home, he saw his wife. And she said to him, Cal, what did the... Um, preacher preach about what did he say what did he preach about and Coolidge said sin <laughs> well Grace that was his wife's name Grace said well what did he say about it he was again <laughs> <laughs> that's the whole conversation <laughs> so um, if you want later on when, when we're not involved in uh, more earnest uh, considerations I'll maybe tell you a few more <laughs> Coolidge stories. But um, anyway, um, so now I begin my lecture. I wish to introduce you to a neighbor of your campus, Calvin Coolidge, the 30th President of the United States of America, is the only president to have been born on the 4th of July. As I hope to show you, this may be thought of as a divine sign. The places where his thought and character grew firm and clear are all a short drive from where we are tonight. Plymouth Notch, Amherst College, where he was blessed to have as a teacher Charles Garman, whom William James called the best college teacher in America, and Northampton, where he read law and started his career of public service. But it was in Plymouth Notch, in the parlor of his modest family house, that his father, a justice of the peace, administered the oath of office to him on August 3, 1923. President Harding was dead. Now Coolidge had become president for the remainder of his term. Coolidge easily won the presidential election of 1924. He carried every state outside the South, 
save for Wisconsin, which went for its native son and famous progressive Robert La Follette. He began his full term in 1925. 1926 was the 150th anniversary of the signing of the Declaration of Independence. Accordingly, when we Americans had occasion to recall that event and renew its meaning in our hearts, it fell to President Coolidge to give the ceremonial address for that purpose at Independence Hall in Philadelphia. He called it the inspiration of the Declaration. My purpose in this lecture is to examine the teaching and rhetoric of that speech. My thesis is that in this speech, Coolidge exhibits the best understanding any American president has had of what and who we are since Abraham Lincoln. <coughs> Sorry, Lincoln moves me. <clears throat> since Abraham Lincoln died in 1865. We will look at the order and thought of this speech tonight. Part one, resting in the truth. Coolidge starts his speech with this sentence. Occasionally, by the way, I am going to try to imitate his manner of speaking. Since he, he was president in uh, 1925, there was some recorded sound, not, not very good, and he gave addresses on the radio, so you can hear him uh, if, if you uh, want to go on the internet and just look up uh, recordings of President Coolidge. You can hear his voice. He's from around here. <laughs> we meet to celebrate the birthday of America. I can't hear that without thinking of these words familiar to us all. A new birth of freedom. That's from the Gettysburg Address. Lincoln. We here highly resolve that these dead shall not have died in vain that this nation, under God, shall have a new birth of freedom, <clears throat> and that government of the people, by the people, and for the people shall not perish from the earth. Lincoln used the language of birth in the first sentence of his speech, too. From, this is the Gettysburg Address again. Four score and seven years ago, our fathers brought forth on this continent a new nation, conceived in liberty and dedicated to the proposition that all men are created equal. The Bible for Lincoln and all but a few Americans in those days was the King James Version and Lincoln knew it well. Notice the words used in Luke's account of the Annunciation. And behold, thou shalt conceive in thy womb and bring forth son, and shalt call his name Jesus. Have you ever done the reckoning with four score and seven? The Gettysburg Address was delivered in November 1863. Four score and seven is 87. 1863 take away 87 gives you 1776, the year of the Declaration. 
There is a reason why Lincoln denominated that year in solemn language, scriptural language. Four score and seven. A figure lurks in the shadows, the figure of John C. Calhoun. Calhoun and the secessionists saw the Federal Union as a mere confederacy or league among the several states, sealed not in 1776, but in 1790 by the ratification of the Constitution and breakable at will by the parties, the states. Calhoun, who died in 1850, held high offices in the federal government for many years. He was an intelligent and learned man. He wrote a book proposing a novel theory of Republican government, one that rejected the Declaration, defended secession, and endorsed slavery. His ideas pointed to a way America could progress beyond the imperfect founding. His disciples would put his theory to use in the secession winter of 1860-61. To say, as Lincoln did, that the Union was born in 1776 and not changed but only made more perfect by the ratification of 1790 is to say that the brave men of Lee's army, so many of whom died in the Battle of Gettysburg, were rebels. It is to say that the secession of 1860-61 was nothing but rebellion. Lincoln's audience was well aware of this fact. We are assembled here tonight, to be sure, principally to think with Coolidge and not Calhoun or even Lincoln. And Calvin Coolidge is commemorating a birth 150 years before his speech, not, as was the case with Lincoln's address, a new birth 87 years after the first one. But like Lincoln, Cal uh, President Coolidge speaks against a shadowy figure and his followers, Woodrow Wilson and the progressives of his day. I will return to the progressives later. Now let us return to the logos, the argument of the speech. <clears throat> Part two, the design of the address. Coolidge sets out the central thought of the declaration first. He sees it as two self-evident truths and an inference drawn from them. And now I'm quoting Coolidge. <clears throat> These were the doctrine that all men are created equal, that they are endowed with certain inalienable rights, and that therefore the source of the just powers of government must be derived from the consent of the governed. This passage in Coolidge concludes the part one <clears throat> of the address you were handed, uh, the inspiration of the declaration. Next, he argues that as a matter of historical fact, this thought, though fully reasonable, found its source and its power in the religious feelings and teachings of our colonial forefathers, 
not in the French or English Enlightenment. He tells us, should we wish to understand our patrimony, to look to the sermons of the reverends Thomas Hooker and John Wise, not the subversive Leviathan of atheist Thomas Hobbes. The Declaration owes more to Moses and St. Paul than it does to Montesquieu and Locke. Coolidge puts it thus, the American clerics preached equality because they believed in the fatherhood of God and the brotherhood of man. They justified freedom by the text that we are all created in the divine image, all partakers of the divine spirit. Placing every man on a plane where he acknowledged no superiors, where no one possessed any right to rule over him, he must inevitably choose his own rulers through a system of self-government. This was their theory of democracy. This nicely sums up part two. I hope you can tell from my inadequate and intentionally understated imitation of Coolidge's mannerisms when he's speaking and when I am. Maybe it's too gentle, I don't know. Uh, I'll also sometimes say quoting or Coolidge says, so you'll keep track. Finally, Coolidge turns to the perpetuation of the spirit of the Declaration in our times and the dangers posed by materialism and the progressive movement of the, of the early 20th century. He says, we live in an age of science and of abounding accumulation of material things. These did not create our declaration. Our declaration created them. The things of the spirit come first. Unless we cling to that, all our material prosperity, overwhelming though it may appear, will turn to a barren scepter in our grasp. This powerful peroration, that is, it's at the end of the speech, exhorts us to keep the torch of liberty lit by remembering and living the truths that gave rise to our republic. Here it is. This is the peroration. If we are to maintain the great heritage which has been bequeathed to us, we must be like-minded as the fathers who created it. We must not sink into a pagan materialism. We must cultivate the reverence which they had for the things that are holy. We must follow the spiritual and moral leadership which they showed. We must keep replenished that they may glow with a more compelling flame the altar fires before which they worshipped. Observations on the rhetoric of what we've looked at so far. The political astuteness and rhetorical craftsmanship of part one merit some attention. First, Coolidge notes the simple fact of venue. The address was delivered in Independence Hall. Dignitaries, American and foreign, were in attendance. 
The gathering was like a pilgrimage to sacred ground, to a temple dedicated to liberty by a mighty deed. The tribes of the peoples, all sorts and conditions of mankind, had gone up to this temple to commemorate a high holy day. Coolidge put it better than I can. Whatever have, may have been the impression created by the news which went out from this city on that summer day in 1776, there can be no doubt as to the estimate which is now placed upon it. At the end of 150 years, the four corners of the earth unite in coming to Philadelphia as to a holy shrine in grateful acknowledgement of a service so great, which few inspired men here rendered to humanity, that it is still the preeminent support of free government throughout the world. I'd like to mention at this point that Coolidge, like many American statesmen before him, but almost none today, composed his own speeches, a thought-provoking fact. His rhetoric, like that of any great orator, is marked by certain idiosyncrasies. Sir Isaac Newton's mathematical style is too. Once Newton submitted an answer to a prize problem proposed by Johann Bernoulli. Let me interrupt myself a second. Prize problems were, were something like, you know, if you can solve this, if you can show that, that uh, you don't need more than four colors to handle a surface map of any degree of complexity so that no two sections adjacent are the same color, or is it five? I forget. Anyway, that, that problem could be proposed by an academy, say, uh, was, in fact, proposed in the past with a large cash prize if you uh, solved it. So the, the Bernoulli and his brothers uh, had the uh, cash to uh, set up a prize problem with cash reward. <clears throat> so uh, Newton submitted an answer. The, the solution was unsigned, but Bernoulli discerned it as from the hand of Sir Isaac. Bernoulli said, Tam quam ex ungre leonem, quote, we recognize the lion from his paw. <clears throat> Let's look at Coolidge and his paw. <laughs> Speaking of the Liberty Bell in Independence Hall, he repeats the notion of holiness we have just encountered. It is little wonder, this is Coolidge again, that people at home and abroad consider Independence Hall as hallowed ground and revere the Liberty Bell as a sacred relic. Repetition. That pile of bricks and mortar, that mass of metal, might appear to the uninstructed as only the outgrown meeting place and the shattered bell of former time, but useless now because of more modern conveniences. But to those who know, to those who know, they have become consecrated by the use to which men, which men have made of them. They have long been identified with a great cause. It's more repetition. 
together with balanced antithesis, modern conveniences, um, the ancient thing consecrated by use. Um, Coolidge again. They are the framework of a spiritual event, period. Short aphoristic sentence, summing it all up. Th those are marks of the way he writes. Uh, now, once again, Coolidge. The world looks upon them because of their associations of 150 years ago as it looks upon the Holy Land because of what took place there 1900 years ago. Repetition. Through use for a righteous purpose, they have become sanctified. That's his aphoristic summary sentence, the short sentence at the end. <clears throat> I find these aspects of the paragraph we have just analyzed make it clearer, more memorable, and more persuasive. Do you? Let's look at the longest sentence in the paragraph. <clears throat> That pile of bricks and mortar, that mass of metal, might appear to the uninstructed as only the outgrown meeting place and shattered bell of a former time, useless now because of more modern conveniences. But to those who know, they have become consecrated by the use which men have made of them. The antithesis here is between what two poles? Are they not the uninstructed? and those who know. To turn about the first pole is to be modern, to despise the outgrown and shattered, and to see, or any way to prefer, only more modern conveniences. Moreover, the relics are reduced to their, material, to their materials, a pile of bricks, a mass of metal. Those who revolve around the true pole see a great cause, a framework, a spiritual event. Thus the difference between the insightful and the blind becomes this. The former reach the interior, the form. The latter see only the matter. Coolidge never read Aristotle so far as I know, but I suspect Aristotle is smiling from his semi-darkness in limbo, where Dante <laughs> places him in the divine comedy, if he can hear from the other world these words. By the way, did you know that Coolidge made a translation of Dante's Inferno as a wedding present to Grace, his bride? <laughs> I wonder if she'd been a little more pleased had it been the party, so. <laughs> The force of this in American terms is a rebuke of our infatuation with progress. There are some things beyond which we ought not, indeed cannot, progress. The figure in the shadows now becomes more distinct. It has to be a progressive. Is it perhaps Woodrow Wilson? Coolidge had gestured towards something that threatens the spiritual event of 1776 before when he imitated some of the Gettysburg Address. Lincoln, too, had made public remarks at Independence Hall on his way to Washington to be sworn in as President of the United States 
1861. This is now Lincoln. I am filled with deep emotion at finding myself standing here in this place where were collected together the wisdom, the patriotism, the devotion to principle from which sprang the institutions under which we live. I can say, sir, that all the political sentiments I entertain have been drawn, so far as I have been able to draw them, from the sentiments which originated and were given to the world from this hall. I have never had a feeling, politically, that did not spring from the sentiments embodied in the Declaration of Independence. He was traveling by train, and this was a kind of quick stop. That might explain the next part. Somebody said, get up here and say something, Abe. And so he did. This is Lincoln again. <clears throat> My friends, this is a wholly unexpected speech. And I did not expect to be called upon to say a word when I came here. I supposed it was merely something to do, to do something toward raising the flag. I may therefore have said something indiscreet. Cries of, no, no. <laughs> I have said nothing but what I am willing to live by. And if it be the pleasure of Almighty God, die by. The next time he was there, he was brought there by his funeral train. We have seen two gestures directed at Wilson and his faction, the progressives. The first was when Lincoln's nemesis, nemesis sorry, nemesis, plural, Calhoun and the secessionists, spiritual cousins of Wilson, in his desire to get beyond the founding, were dealt a subtle rebuke by the use of birth as the theme of the first paragraph of the address to say nothing of the location and occasion themselves. I promise to return to the progressives later. Coolidge and Lincoln both give us wonderful examples of Republican rhetoric. All we need to do all we need to do to become eloquent for a time is to explain them. Coolidge mentions the revolution and its causes, but only with a light touch. The economic provocations of the Stamp Act and navigation laws received less than a full paragraph. More attention is given to the people and their character. The revolution is said to have been neither top-down nor bottom-up. Most of the wealthy or well-born did not support it or even actively resisted it. As to the notion of poor and ignorant masses bringing it about, Coolidge dismisses it with these two brisk and patriotic sentences. It was in no sense arising of the oppressed and downtrodden. It brought no scum to the surface for the reason that Colonial society had developed no scum. The paragraph concludes thus. The American Revolution represented the informed and mature convictions of a great mass of independent, liberty-loving, God-fearing people who knew their rights and possessed the courage to dare to maintain them. In the politics, Aristotle famously argues for a regime free from domination by the many or the few, the poor or rich. 
and graced by a large and decent middle element. Coolidge agrees. But any polity requires a few, not ruling by wealth or birth, and certainly not maimed by poverty, to have and be able to exercise political prudence. Coolidge follows this line of thinking in the next paragraph with a characteristically American addition, representation. Note the threefold repetition in the way he does this. The Continental Congress was not only composed of great men, but it represented a great people. While its members did not fail to exercise a remarkable leadership, they were equally observant of their representative capacity. They were industrious in encouraging their constituents to instruct them to support independence. But until such instructions were given, they were inclined to withhold action. Now, the Congress that he has in mind, the one that adopted the Declaration, was composed of delegations from the several states. This fact enables Coolidge to indulge in a little stroking of state pride. He reviews in laudatory terms the yeas of the delegations of six states, four of them southern. Oh, and he gives New York <coughs> a gentle frown. That one pleases me especially. <laughs> Apologies to New Yorkers here. <laughs> Finally, he turns to the significance of the act of that Congress, the Declaration of Independence. I had said earlier that part one ends with two propositions and a deduction from them. This is the first sentence of that paragraph. It was not because it was proposed to establish a new nation, but because it was proposed to establish a nation on new principles that July 4th, 1776 has come to be regarded as one of the greatest days in history. The conclusion the two axioms and the implication are worth hearing again. Here I'm learning from Coolidge, huh? Repetition. <clears throat> that all men are created equal, that they are endowed with certain inalienable rights, and that therefore the source of the just powers of government must be derived from the consent of the governed. <laughs> Practical matters. Actually, the stuff about the states was a bit practical. The fact that the people's representatives made the declaration leads into the consideration of practical politics. Coolidge was thoughtful, but he was not only a thinking man, he was a statesman. His interest in the sources of the great ideas, fundamental to the Declaration of Independence, did not blind him in any way to the great task of making them the charter of a truly independent people, which was to, and now I'm quoting the Declaration, assume among the powers of the earth the separate and equal station to which the laws of nature and nature's God entitled them." Unquote. Coolidge is famous for his parsimonious use of words. He is the American Lacedaemonian par excellence. His average sentence length, according to some industrious scholar, is less than that of Theodore Roosevelt, 41 words. Woodrow Wilson, 31.8. That was a very industrious scholar. <laughs> Lincoln, 26.6. .6. Less than all. 
Silent Cal comes in at 18 words per sentence on average. The longest single sentence in the address, 120 words by my count, is devoted to the importance of the success of the armies of Washington already in the field in making the independence of the nation to be founded upon those principles a reality. Following this, he turns to the evidence for the claim cited earlier. Namely, the declaration, though fully reasonable, found its source and its power in the religious feelings and teachings of our colonial forefathers, not in the French or English Enlightenment. He grants, <clears throat> quoting here, some influence coming from the speculations in England and on the continent, but forthrightly declares, when we contemplate the principles of human relationship which went into the Declaration of Independence, we are not required to extend our search beyond our own shores. They are to be found in the texts, the sermons, and the writings of the early, early colonial clergy who were earnestly undertaking to instruct their congregations in the great mystery of how to live. Mrs. Coolidge again. They preached equality because they believed in the fatherhood of God and the brotherhood of man. They justified freedom by the text that we are all created in the divine image, all partakers of the divine spirit. If Coolidge is right about the principles of the Declaration, then the Republic founded on these principles, our American Republic, will only endure if we hold fast to the principles. And this is the continuing task, not so much of the American government, but of the American people. Coolidge is emphatic on that point. The people have to bear their own responsibilities." Unquote. I now come to the passage that first gave me both delight and appreciation for Coolidge as a master orator. At the same time, Woodrow Wilson, the progressive, will step out of the shadows, and we will see what Coolidge is subtly saying about him and progressive politics. I will be quoting a sizable stretch of the text here. First, this perfect topic sentence. About the Declaration, there is a finality that is exceedingly restful. Taste its Aristotelian language. Savor it. Finality. Rest. In political thought, as in the physics of a world of manifest mutability, rest and not change has the last, or better, first and last word. And what is the contrary to this fundamental truth? Progress, endless progress towards no end. Now, political wisdom must indeed accommodate mutability, 
This is a feature of our Constitution. Even though it was framed with the permanent principles of the Declaration in mind, it provides for amendment. And it has been amended, sometimes in weighty manner. But what about the principles themselves as set forth in the document? Here is Coolidge on that question. It is often asserted that the world has made a great deal of progress since 1776, that we have had new thoughts and new experiences which have given us a great advance over the people of that day, and that we may therefore very well discard their conclusions for something more modern. But that reasoning cannot be applied to this great charter. If all men are created equal, that is final. If they are endowed with inalienable rights, that is final. If governments derive their just powers from the consent of the governed, that is final. No advance, no progress can be made beyond these propositions. If anyone wishes to deny their truth or their soundness, the only direction in which he can proceed historically is not forward, but backward toward the time when there was no equality, no rights of the individual, no rule of the people. Those who wish to proceed in that direction cannot lay claim to progress. They are reactionary. Their ideas are not more modern, but more ancient than, the than those of the revolutionary fathers. I hope you're thinking at this point, this is great stuff. <laughs> that repetition of that is final, that just knocked my socks off the first time I read it. I thought that's just perfect, you know? It's like a, it's like a refrain in music or something. It's in a ballad, it's just wonderful. Um, and now I wish to call two great progressives, this is me, not Coolidge. I wish to call two great progressives to the stand to give their testimony about these things. First, the most famous and influential historian of the early 20th century, Charles Beard. <clears throat> Wilson waits in the wings. I quote from a lecture Beard gave at Columbia in 1908. That's 18 years before the Coolidge speech. <clears throat> quote, in comparing the political writings of the last 25 years with the earlier treatises, one is struck with decreasing reference to the doctrine of natural rights as a basis for political practice. The theory has been rejected because we have come to recognize since Darwin's day that the nature of things once supposed to be eternal is itself a stream of tendency. And in the same lecture, Beard said, Locke mistakenly depended upon an understanding of nature using abstract reason rather than history and the method of science to understand politics. The influence of the historical school on correct thinking in politics has been splendidly supplemented by that of the Darwinians." Unquote. Enter Wilson, stage left. In that same year, Wilson, quoting Edmund Burke, wrote, 
If anyone asks me what a free government is, I reply, it is what the people think so. And continuing in his own voice, the Declaration of Independence speaks to the same effect. We think of it as a highly theoretical document, but except for its assertion that all men are equal, it is not. It is intensely practical, even upon the question of liberty. It expressly leaves to each generation of men the determination of what they will do with their lives, what they will prefer as the form and object of their liberty, in what they will seek their happiness. Or as Justice Kennedy would have said, to define the meaning of existence for themselves. In his 1913 book, The New Freedom, Wilson wrote, <clears throat> this is kind of long, uh, so I'll say quote at the beginning, but I won't repeat. <clears throat> In every generation, all sorts of speculation and thinking tend to fall under the formula of the dominant thought of the age. For example, after the Newtonian theory of the universe had been developed, Almost all thinking tended to express itself in the analogies of the Newtonian theory. And since the Darwinian theory has reigned amongst us, everybody is likely to express whatever he wishes to expound in terms of development and accommodation to environment. This is Wilson, right? Now it came to me that the Constitution of the United States had been made under the dominion of the Newtonian theory. You have only to read the pages of the Federalist to see the fact written on every page. They speak of the checks and balances of the Constitution and used to express their idea of the similarity of the organization of the universe and particularly of the solar system, how by the attraction of gravitation, the various parts are held in their orbits. And then they represent, they proceed to represent Congress, the judiciary, and the president as a sort of imitation of the solar system. It was a Frenchman, Montesquieu, who pointed out to them how faithfully they had copied Newton's description of the mechanism of the heavens. The makers of our federal constitution read Montesquieu with true scientific enthusiasm. They were scientists in their own way, the best way of their age, those fathers of the nation. Jefferson wrote of the laws of nature, and then, by way of an afterthought, and of nature's God. And they constructed a government as they would have constructed an orrery to display the laws of nature. An orrery is a little mechanical model of the uh, planets and sun, and um, <clears throat> they were very popular in the 18th century. I think Jefferson owned one. Um, I lost my place by that digression. I'll find it an orrery to display the laws of nature. Politics in their thought was a variety of mechanics. The Constitution was founded on the law of gravitation. The government was to exist and move by virtue of the efficacies of checks and balances. The trouble with the theory is that government is not a machine, but a living thing. It falls not under the theory of the universe, but under the theory of organic life. It is accountable to Darwin, not to Newton. It is modified by its environment, necessitated by its tasks, shaped to its functions by the sheer pressure of life. No living thing can have its organs 
can have its organs offset against each other as checks and live. Government is a body of men with highly differentiated, differentiated functions, no doubt, in our modern day of specialization with a common task and purpose. Their cooperation is indispensable. Their warfare, fatal. There can be no successful government without the intimate, instinctive coordination of the organs of life and action. This is not a theory, but fact, and displays its force as fact, whatever theories may be thrown across its track. That's the end of the long Wilson excerpt. Note here how Wilson dismisses theory with scorn and elevates life. Intelligence and her firstborn political principle had been architectonic for those who establish and preserve regimes from Aristotle to Lincoln. With Wilson, they yield pride of place to those upstart twins, mere rationality and reaction instrumental rationality, reaction to circumstance. A regime is shaped, here's Wilson again, by the pressures of life, modified by the environment, necessitated by its tasks. There is no best regime anymore, not even as a pattern laid up in heaven. Just as there is no perfect organism, all is in who, discerning these pressures, this environment, and these tasks, will undertake the works of instrumental rationality? The people, well instructed by tradition and patriotism, can see and hold the truths of the Declaration's unchanging principles. But who can survey the vast fields of ever-changing facts so as to keep up with the times? Whoever such a man or such men may be, they surely must be polymaths and experts. I suggest administrators. Are you familiar with the concept living constitution? Here you are seeing a phase of the birth of that monster. Wilson continues, living political constitutions must be Darwinian in structure and practice. Society is a living organism and must obey the laws of life, not mechanics. It must develop. It's still Wilson. All that progressive ask, all that progressives ask or desire is permission in an era when development, evolution is the scientific word, to interpret the Constitution according to the Darwinian principle. All they ask is recognition of the fact that a nation is a living thing and not a machine. Some citizens, still Wilson, of this country have never got beyond the Declaration of Independence. Signed in Philadelphia, no, July 4th, 1776. They have no consciousness of what is going on today. The Declaration of Independence did not mention the questions of our day. It is of no consequence to us, still Wilson, unless we can translate its general terms into examples of the present day and substitute them in some vital way for the examples it, gives, it itself gives, so concrete, 
so intimately involved in the circumstances of the day in which it was conceived and written. It is an eminently practical document, meant for the use of practical men, not a theory of government, but a program of action. One of the practical men, now this is not Wilson, uh, of Wilson's day was his chief of staff, Colonel Edward House. <clears throat> Has anyone ever heard of Colonel House? Okay. House wrote a book published anonymously in 1912. Oh, I'm sorry, I want to tell you about him first. Um, House never served in the US Army. He was no more a colonel than Jill Biden is an MD. <laughs> or Colonel Sanders is a military officer. <laughs> For most of Wilson's tenure, House was the second most important man in his administration. House wrote a book published anonymously in 1912 entitled, Philip Drew, Administrator. <laughs> I think that ought to be, that's, it makes me think of Nancy Drew, <laughs> you know, <laughs> the Hardy Boys or something like that. Philip Drew, administrator. It is a political fantasy novel in which a second civil war breaks out and the rebels, led by the, of course, charming and super intelligent Mr. Drew, defeat the United States Army and institute a rational dictatorship with Drew as dictator. After mandating progressive reforms, Drew and his wife, Gloria, board a ship in San Francisco and sail off into the sunset. <laughs> Sick transit, Gloria Mundi. <laughs> Wild stuff, eh? But I am not making this up. As the sagacious Yogi Berra used to say, you can look it up. Again, let us hear more from Wilson himself. Quote, I used to say, when I had to do with the administration of an educational institution, he you know who he's talking about? Princeton, he was the president. That I should like to make the young gentlemen of the rising gener generation as unlike their fathers as possible. Because their fathers, by reason of their advancing years, and their established position in society were out of sympathy with the creative, formative, and progressive forces of society. People actually said these things. Progress. Did you ever reflect, that, this is still Wilson, that that word is almost a new one? No word comes more often or more naturally to the lips of modern man, as if the thing it stands for were almost synonymous with life itself. And yet, men through many thousand years never talked or thought of progress. They thought in the other direction. Progress, development, those are modern words. The modern idea is to leave the past and press onward to something new. Is it becoming clear now why I compare Wilson to Calhoun and, and, and uh, call them dark figures in the shadows of Presidents Coolidge and Lincoln? That same President Coolidge who said, that is final, that is final, that is final, threefold repetition. 
Allow me to uh, uh, well, indulge me a little more <clears throat> with a little more from that great Coolidge address to underline this point. Recall Wilson's contempt for the mechanical system of checks and balances. Now listen to Silent Cal's prophetic voice. Quote, it was in the contemplation of these truths that the fathers made their declaration and adopted their constitution. They undertook to balance these interests against each other and provide the three separate and independent branches, the executive, the legislative, and the judicial departments of the government with checks against each other in order that neither one might encroach upon the other. These are our guarantees of liberty. Coolidge. As Jeremiah said of another law, and truths deeper still, thus saith Jehovah, stand ye in the ways and see and ask for the old paths, where is the good way, and walk therein, and ye shall find rest for your souls. I need not demonstrate, given what we have heard from Wilson, that he carried the title of reformer. Does Coolidge have him in mind? The next words from the address are the following. How could he not? Under a system of popular government, there will always be those who seek for political free preferment by clamoring for reform. While there is very little of this which is not sincere, there is a large portion that is not well informed. In my opinion, very little of just criticism can attach to the theories and principles of our institutions. There is far more danger of harm than there is hope of good in any radical changes. Our American Jeremiah goes on to teach the old paths. Quote, Our forefathers came to certain conclusions and decided upon certain courses of action which have been a great blessing to the world. Before we can understand their conclusions, we must go back and review the course which they followed. We must think the thoughts which they thought. Their intellectual life centered around the meeting house. A few of you are Protestants here, so let me say that refers to the little country church. <laughs> the meeting house. They were intent upon religious worship. While there were always among them men of great learning, of deep learning, and later those who had comparatively large possessions, the mind of the people was not so much engrossed in how much they knew or how much they had as in how they were going to live. While scantily provided with other literature, there was a wide acquaintance with scriptures. Over a period as great as that which measures the existence of our independence, they were subject to this discipline, not only in their religious life and educational training, but also in their political thought. They were a people who came under the influence of a great spiritual development and acquired a great moral power. Now, here again, the climax of his peroration. 
if we are to maintain the great heritage which has been bequeathed to us, we must be like-minded as the fathers who created it. We must not sink into a pagan materialism. We must cultivate the reverence which they had for the things that are holy. We must follow the spiritual and moral leadership which they showed. We must keep replenished that they may glow with a more compelling flame, the altar fires before which they worshiped. It seems to me that it was fitting in the divine plan for such a man to have been born on the 4th of July. The spirit of liberty, the spirit of 76, descended upon him as did that much greater spirit with its tongues of fire upon the church 20 centuries ago. President Calvin Coolidge, like Lincoln, was a successor to Washington and the other apostles of our American Novus Ordo Seclorum. He kept the faith. He merits our attention and our honor. Thank you for listening.